Hello, and you're very welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Why do some organizations set the standard for innovation while others fall short? Sometimes it simply comes down to being able to identify the opportunity in the first place. According to my guest today, Ben Chinoy. Ben is an IMI associate, management consultant, speaker, and academic who decodes organizational quandaries using behavioral science. Last year, he held a mini masterclass at IMI on the topic of an evolutionary approach to innovation. I'm delighted today to be joined on the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast by Ben Chinoy. Ben, great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be on. Uh, it's great to have you. There's so many angles to come at this topic, Ben, of innovation. But I suppose I wanted to start here with a question about assumptions and what we know and what we don't know. So I think one of the main things to come out of your mini masterclass was why assumptions can sometimes be our undoing when it comes to innovation as leaders. Would you be able to kind of shed some light on that? Of course, David. Um, so if we start with a really simple definition of innovation as being we're trying to create novel things or ideas that are valuable to someone. If we start with that definition, at the heart of the, the challenge of creating innovations is that we're, we're trying to operate in the space between uh, the paradoxical space, actually, between what we know and what we don't know. And to be more specific, what we're trying to do is we're trying to complement what we know with what we don't know. Let me give you a couple of examples. Actually, let's use a couple of really big, famous digital examples. So let's look at Airbnb and Uber. We all know about them. They're talked about much in the digital and innovation space. But if you look at both of them, yeah, they're novel. They have you know, an app. They use data. They use, uh, you know, uh, they're both asset-like businesses, all very clever new stuff. But underneath it all, they're serving needs that are as old as time, right? I need to get from A to B, or I want a place to stay for the night. So both of these businesses combine something that's, if you like, very old with something that's new. So, so that hopefully that gives you an idea of where we're going in terms of this space between no and don't know. Let me turn now to your question about assumptions. And you say you were struck by assumptions in the mini masterclass. If you look at what Mark Twain said about assumptions, uh, Mark Twain said, it, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. So what I think Mark Twain is saying is that our assumptions, i.e. Uh, what we knew, know for sure that just ain't so, is what gets us into trouble more so than the things we don't know. Um, and let me give you a, a one, a couple of, really well-known examples and then an older, less well-known example. So examples of people who got into trouble because of their assumptions. I'm gonna quote two really old examples, Polaroid and Kodak, everyone's heard of them. Let me tie this to assumptions. Both these companies invented the digital camera, the digital camera in about 1990, 1991. So this is about 30 years ago. And they both canned their new R&D, uh, you know, these new innovations. Because, why? Because they both held an assumption that film was how you made money in the camera business, right? They were both printing money for decades on film. And um, because they hold, were so held so firm on those assumptions, they both went out of business. Uh, let me give you a much older, much less well-known example. Uh, in the, the second half of the, the 19th century, 
there was a very a thriving business of ice farmers, people who went out and farmed ice on frozen lakes and sold it to people like you and me because we wanted to freeze our meat. Um, very successful business until uh, we had uh, the discovery of electricity and the invention of refrigerators. They had the assumption that people would still buy ice from ice farms and they increased their productivity by 150%. Uh, turns out they were wrong, which is why we don't have ice farms around today. One of the, I suppose, one of the really interesting things, uh, you know, as you kind of lay out those examples is just, you know, how I suppose passing a lot of these things are and how, you know, guys keeping up is, is kind of one of the main priorities. Yes. I think another really interesting um, thing to look at is, you know, on an organizational level, how do decisions come into the kind of structure for making innovative, uh, you know, I suppose, ma making innovative practices uh, standard? So would you be able to comment on why a kind of a sound decision-making uh, infrastructure is critical for innovation? And why do some organizations perhaps fall short on that front? Um, so if we think about what we're trying to do with innovation, we're trying to create something new and valuable in, a, in conditions of extreme uncertainty. And think about the complexity of the, 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 if you like, the cat's cradle of factors that need to pop into place in the right time, in the right place for this to happen uh, successfully. How complex is that? Given the complexity of that challenge and the uncertainty of that challenge, I think it's, it's really imperative that organizations have uh, if you like, distinct but connected phases of iterative decision-making cycles. And let me just elaborate on what I think those distinct but connected uh, decision phases or cycles are. I think, first of all, organizations need to be able to frame. And by, by frame, I mean, try to figure out what the right problem to solve is. And, and I'm drawing a distinction here between problem solving and problem finding. Most organizations and most managers and leaders of organizations are great problem solvers, which is why they're in the positions they are. But the trap in times of complexity and uncertainty is that we, we jump to problem solving so quickly that we fall into the trap of uh, solving the wrong problem precisely rather than the right problem, however messily. Uh, I, I go back to my, my previous example, the ice farmers. They frame the problem as how can... We need to respond to refrigeration, the threat of refrigeration, by becoming more efficient at ice farming. Turns out that was the wrong problem formulation with hindsight. The second cycle or you know, phase of decision-making I think we need um, is, is what I, I call test. Um, often we talk about experimentation, lean startup. At the heart of this is uh, we're experimenting because we want to validate those assumptions. I'll go back to Mark Twain. Uh, what do you know for sure that just ain't so? How do we, uh, how do we test that our assumptions are actually a, a, a clear reflection of reality? And if we don't experiment, we have no way of knowing if our hunches are true or not. A couple of examples of this, right, of, of testing, and I'm going to use old examples rather than new ones. Um, so let's go right back 100 years. Uh, the Ford Model T, um, you know, we all think of the Ford Model T as being black. And you can have it in any color long, uh, you like as long as it's black. In fact, if you go back from 1903 to about 1925, the Ford Model T was red, green, various other colors, and then it ended up being black. 
And over that time, uh, Henry Ford experimented, we've forgotten all of this with history, right? But he experimented. The original 1903 model Ford didn't have uh, a roof, it didn't have doors, it didn't have windscreen wipers, it didn't have a stop self automatic ignition. Why? Because he built it as a literally a horseless carriage. It looked like a horse, horse drawn carriage without horses. And then over the years, he did a couple of things. He added in these things, you know, things that we recognize today, roofs, doors, windscreen wipers, etc., cetera, um, that made it look more like a car. And he was stumbling around. And, and by the way, the black paint, um, it's not because it was cheap. It was because it could cope with stone chips above 25 miles an hour. It turns out the Japanese, and it's interesting, Japanese manufacturer of this paint could only make it in black. So it's not about price, but, but look at how, the, the way in which he experimented with this. Let me give you another example of this. Akio Morita, uh, who's the ch chief executive and chairman of Sony, came up with the idea of the Walkman. When they market tested the Walkman in 19, about 1974, 1975, people rejected the idea. They said, I don't, we don't want Walkman. We don't want this, this, this concept because their mental model, their assumption of how they listen to music was, we listen to music in our living rooms with a big box, you know, probably made of wood, right? With big speakers. Why would I want to listen to music on the move, in the car, on the train, jogging, right? That, that, that thing did not exist in those days. So, so this idea of testing is, is also really important in your decision-making structure. The final, the third, phase I would argue for, for decision-making is, is what I call scale. Um, basically, how do you take your uh, innovation and spread it as widely as you can? Because without that scaling, however cool your innovation is, however clever it is, however valuable it is, it'll have less impact on the world. So, so uh, an obvious example of this would be something like, I don't know, Starbucks, right? Look at how Starbucks, you know, the innovation is uh, expensive coffee that people like, Look at how they spread it across the world. Another example of this is the Aravind eye hospital system, which started off in India. So the problem was 80% of people who had cataracts in the developing world, you know, cataracts causes blindness. 80% of those people could be treated if you could come up with a way of treating them cheaply and fast. What Aravind did was to set up a system where they increased the, the um, dot eye surgeon's productivity, i.e., how many operations they can do by something like five to tenfold, right? Five to tenfold per annum compared with other Indian doctors and other doctors in the um, developing world. They've now got something like, I don't know, two, 275 hospitals around the world. They're treating thousands, hundreds of thousands of people a year. Without that scaling, they would you know, be a cool idea with little impact, but they are changing the world. You also asked, what, how do organizations or where do organizations fall short on this? If you think about this frame test scale cycle, organizations are typically stronger on one of these phases and less strong on the others. Um, so just to illustrate this, uh, established organizations, guess what? They're typically stronger on the scaling. They're really good at delivering impact at scale. So for example, think of the dominance of Six Sigma. Where they tend to be weaker is the reframing the world when it changes and the innovation piece. Mm -hmm. Startups, on the other hand, are at the other end of the scale. They're great at prototyping, trialing, experimentation. They're, you know, think of Lean Startup, for example, but they 
are less good at the scaling their innovation uh, so that it impacts the world. The, the thought for leaders is um, how do you how do you flex? How do you figure out the, the, the right yardstick to use with your teams in frame test scale? Because the, the recipe for success is different in each of these. How much of innovation actually comes down to being able to identify these opportunities in the first place before we can even put any kind of models in place? And what steps perhaps could leaders take to be more aware of the opportunities that are out there to innovate? So I'd say a couple of things. First of all, the framing, if you like, is the way through which you see the, the situation in the world. So that framing helps you spot uh, what might be problems or opportunities to, to solve for. And the other thing I'd say, and we'll, you know, we'll talk about this more um, maybe in a little while, but if you're in a position of leadership in an organization, don't just think about a single opportunity. Think about them as a portfolio. And the reason I say that is there's a high failure rate on innovation. Uh, um, you know, writers talk about, and I think it was Hemingway who said there's no such, a good, uh, such thing as a good first draft. I would sort of take that and edit it slightly and say, in the context of innovation, there's no such thing as a good initial idea. You often start with badly formed ideas and then you work on them. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, you need to scan for multiple opportunities and accept that you're going to have a high failure rate and that even with the ones that succeed, there may be a sort of a, it's not a straight line path. It's much more of a zigzag, a meandering path to get to success. Coming back to your question, where do you find, you know, if you're looking for many opportunities, not one, how do you go about finding these many opportunities? I think the first thing I'd say is don't assume you have to do it all yourself. Don't look just to yourself as an individual for uh, innovative ideas. Uh, in a way, the role of leaders is to scout for people within the organization or, or outside, within the supply chain, you know, within the ecosystem more broadly, who are doing weird but cool stuff that challenges the conventional wisdom. Um, in the research, these people are called positive deviants. Um, and I think the job of leaders, a big job of leaders, is to follow, sorry, to find those positive deviants and then celebrate them and become their followers. Another way of looking for ideas is to look sideways. So, so look at what other people, maybe outside your sector, are doing. Again, let me give you an example. Back to the Aravind Eye Hospital. That, uh, the, the, the surgeon who set up the Aravind Eye Hospital system, he got the idea of how to mass produce uh, eye surgery, right, at volume. Two so the average Aravind doctor does 2,000 operations a year. The average Indian doctor does 400 a year. The average Asian doctor does about 150 to 200 operations a year. So how do you do a, a, you know, 2,000 eye, um, eye operations a year? What he did, guess what? He went and looked at the McDonald's system, right, the, you know, the hamburgers, right? And he translated the, the operational system of McDonald's to eye surgery. Um, so, so there are many different ways of uh, looking around uh, and it's about keeping your eye open for these opportunities. Yeah, definitely. And there, there's, a, as you say, there's a leadership, I suppose, um, responsibility there to be uh, empowering your positive deviance, as you say, and uh, you know the people around you as well. But I suppose on an organizational level, Ben, um, I'm interested to ask you just why do you think some organizations do shy away from that kind of experimentation and testing and what key advantages come from taking risks? Great question. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, a lot of especially established organizations shy away from experimentation. Um, 
I think a big part of the explanation for this is a phenomenon called the tyranny of success. All organizations begin life as startups. Most of them fail. We know that from you know, just the data. Right? A few of them stumble upon some recipe that becomes successful. Right? Customers want what they want. And then what they do is they try and reinforce that success. They try and bolster it and figure out how to replicate it and scale it up. In, in almost inherent in that pursuit of growth is inertia, right? You get locked into a way of doing things, which is incredibly profitable, but it, it, it um, discourages uh, experimentation because you wanna just focus on the thing that works and you don't wanna waste your attention on other things that probably don't work. Um, and this is, a great, this is a great recipe for managing an organization until the world changes. Uh, go back to uh, Polaroid and Kodak, go back even further to the, our ice farmers. Uh, more recently, think about Nokia and BlackBerry um, and about how they had an incredibly successful business model, but because of their shyness for experimentation, uh, you know, they're, they're not in, with us in the form that they were 10 years ago. To your point about what's the, you know, the, the business case or the rationale for experimentation, experimentation makes our assumptions explicit. They're not just implicit in our heads and we're not aware of them. To put it in Mark Twain's terms, they expose what we know that just ain't so. Um, so a way of thinking about experimentation is that they help us see reality more clearly. As an example of this, let me uh, give you a story about something called the Kramer Prize. Um, this was a prize launched in 1959, uh, about 50,000 pounds in those days, a lot of money. To, for manned flight. So the idea was if you can fly between two posts half a mile apart uh, in a figure of eight, you get 50,000 pounds. Lots of people tried this for nearly 20 years. And then a, a, an engineer called Paul McCready thought about it in a slightly different way. He said, most people are trying to figure out how to power this plane, this human powered flight, uh, this plane. Um, I'm not gonna worry about that. I'm gonna build a plane that is designed to crash, right? So it's designed for experimentation. So he built it so that it crashed and you could rebuild it easily. Um, so he built this plane, had lots of crashes. Within six months, he would figured out how to do it because he built, I mean, we call it an agile method today, right? <laughs> Those days, he just built a plane to crash, right? Uh, and back to my point earlier, um, he's, I think what he did was rather than solve the wrong problem precisely, with a lot, with, with, which everyone else did, um, he solved the right problem messily. So hopefully that story illustrates the, the, the power of experimentation. Exactly. It's that idea, as you said, of the kind of uh, squiggly line. It's, it's never yeah. it's okay. never a direct path. Um, if we look at the current context, Ben, I think it's very interesting to look at, um, obviously, how COVID-19 has you know, had a massive impact on all levels of society. But um, as we look at it through the leadership lens, this kind of movement into crisis mode, you know, has prompted a lot of, you know, innovations, reimaginations of how businesses work. But as we know, every disruption like this will have an endpoint. So I suppose with that in mind, what would you advise leaders to do to kind of maintain that sense of urgency? Um, we call it an innovation imperative, if you like. Um, yes. Even when there is no crisis, uh, or if they're, you know, if there is, if they're not in crisis mode, I suppose. That's a great question, uh, um, and you're right about the importance of this innovation imperative. That's a great term for it. The first thing I'd do is I'd, I'd 
draw a distinction between a crisis and a disruption. So we can think of a crisis as a time of uh, incredible danger or difficulty. Um, you may well have lives at risk. Um, so some crises is just think about, you know, what happens in an earthquake? What's happened when we're trying to evacuate um, uh, people from Afghanistan? Contrast that with a disruption, which is, we can think of that as, you know, there's some profound or radical change happening, but it might be fast, it might be slow. And so if you think about crisis and disruption, you can almost draw a, a Venn diagram, right? And you, know, you might have some disruptions that lead to crises. There are some disruptions that happen in a much more slower time. So to your question you know, about, so how do you maintain that innovation imperative, that sense of urgency in a time of, which is disruptive, but not necessarily crisis or critical, um, how do you do that? So for, for crises, I think crises demand speedy decision-making, direct lines of communication, direct authority. There's a, there's a whole discipline around crisis management. Disruption requires something slightly different, especially when it's not a disruption that's not a crisis. I think it requires a clear sense in a very messy, disruptive, unpredictable world, clear sense of what you're aiming for. So um, in the military, they talk about the commander's intent. What's the commander's intent? Take the hill, right? That clarity in a, in a time of confusion can be incredibly uh, empowering and enlightening. And I think what underpins it is a sense of this frame test scale, what I call discovery-led decision-making. How do you make decisions so that you convert the unknown and assumptions into the known? So you, you clear the fog, so to speak. And what I would say is, the, the role of leaders in this is to, to impart a clear sense of what organizations should aim for over time. So not just in the immediate future, but over a longer time horizon. And I'd, I'd say, suggest three things. First, focus on the why, as well as the what and the how. So why are we doing this? What is our end objective? And, and you know, more than a vision, it's what's the rationale for the vision? What is it? And, and part of it is cognitive, i.e., yep, there's a clear rationale for this. And part of it's emotional. This excites me because we're, we're, we're making some impact on the world. The second thing about this is the role of or the effect of framing in times of uncertainty. So um, if you're faced with a challenge, and th there's the psychological um, studies that have been done on this, when you, when you prime participants with a threat framing, versus a challenge framing, right? An, an opportunity framing. People respond much more productively when they're given a challenge framing. I can do, it's tough, but I can do this rather than what you might call a, a threat framing, which induces fear. So I think it's the role, part of the role of leaders in very confusing, very threatening times is to create an almost an emotional bubble of we're, we're looking at the world very clearly, but I'm giving you emotional support so that you feel you have the courage to, to try things, right, and to fail. And, and I'm going to protect you. I'm almost going to try and you know, give you this bubble of protection from what is a very threatening environment. And then the final thing I'd say, uh, I'm going to repeat myself now, uh, it's about validating assumptions, testing for Mark Twain's um, uh, warning. You know, are, are the things that you know for sure, is, are they just ain't so or are they real? And let me give you one example of an organization that's going through this right now. Um, so Daimler, the, the parent company of Mercedes-Benz. Um, so they've created a division called 
uh, Daimler Mobility. And look at what they're having to deal with, right? This is a luxury car manufacturer that is going through, you know, what's going, you know, going from internal combustion engines to, to well, we don't know, right? It might be electric, mm -hmm. it might be hydrogen, who knows, right? It's, it's something else probably, right? Not hydrocarbons. Um, and the other thing they're having to deal with is, are we gonna move from a model of car ownership to basically sort of the robo taxi model where we don't own cars, we go on an app and we, you know, a robo taxi comes, we hire a car for half an hour to take my kids to school, to take your kids to school, to go to work, to go shopping, whatever. And, and their way of navigating this, they talk about lighthouse towers uh, in terms of vision, vision statements. And Daimler, they've created a division called Daimler Mobility and their, their, their tagline is, we move you. Just, just think about that for a moment, right? We move you, yep, they move us because we get in a car and um, we, maybe with a driver, maybe with, uh, without. We might own it, we might not, we might lease it, who knows? Um, and, and, but also, it's not just physically moving us, right? They're, they're aspiring to move us emotionally, which is quite an interesting you know, thing to think about. And it's quite an interesting thing for their leaders and their people to think about how do we go about moving people both physically and emotionally in, in this very confusing world. So that's that's their command, isn't it? Yeah, that's a fascinating one and a very good tagline as well, I must say. <laughs> yeah, it is. I like it. Yeah. Um, ben, well, just to finish up, one uh, thing I wanted to ask you about um, during your uh, mini masterclass, you mentioned uh, Charles Darwin and mm. the kind of uh, the framework there that can be related to uh, innovation. Would you be able to comment on that for our listeners? I'd be delighted to. So, so if we start with uh, Darwin, you know, we can we can sort of summarize uh, Darwin's theory of, of evolution in three steps: um, variation, selection, adaptation. So, variation is in each generation you get lots of mutation, genetic mutations, um, uh, mo and, and selection is most of them don't last more than a generation. Um, a few of them survive. Um, so, for example, think of uh, the large front brain, I'm thinking about human beings, right? The large forebrain, the prefrontal cortex. Think about the ad adaptations to our hips that mean that we can walk on, on two legs, not four. Uh, think of the opposable thumb, which is so useful on our hands, right? So uh, most of those uh, mutations, uh, those variations get destroyed in one generation, that selection. And then a few of them change the species. So this is adaptation, right? So we are smart, we walk on two legs, we can do stuff with our hands that a lot of other mammals can't. So that's variation selection adaptation. Now let's go back to that decision, uh, discovery-led decision-making framework I, I discussed earlier, frame test scale. If you map variation selection adaptation onto frame test scale, you end up with a sequence, which is we ideate lots of ideas, we select most of them out, Right? We kill most of those ideas, maybe 95, 98% of those ideas. And then we scale those few that, that um, you know, are, are going to change the world, we hope. Right? Those three steps in organizational and if you apply this evolutionary perspective to an organization innovation cycle, they are profoundly different. Right? Think about how we need to act and how our leaders need to encourage us in each of those different steps. So if you're looking at innovation, uh, sorry, ideation, this is all about, let's get, you know, uh, problem finding, right? solve the right problem. What are alternative perspectives? What weak signals should we look for? We need to be really thoughtful and go slow to go fast, if you like. 
We need to take, you know, we need to embrace risk, all of that, right? So, uh, selection, this is the testing, right? This is all about uh, smart failure, right? Uh, failure is information. Uh, we need to be, uh, where in, in the ideation stage, we're encouraging people to come up with ideas. In this stage, we're encouraging people to kill ideas, right? So, so the opposite. Uh, and think about the subculture you that's different, right? And then finally, scaling, when you get into scaling with those two or three ideas that might succeed, you're, you're into a different discipline. You're into repeatability. You're into Six Sigma. You know, failure is now stupid, not smart. And we're trying to manage risk down to something the, the host organization can tolerate. Look at how flexible we're demanding our leaders to be across those three stages. And we're asking them to have the, the breadth of vision to see across the whole chain. Um, and just a couple of examples of how the, the demands on leaders for this. I'll, let me go back to car industry again. Um, for, the, for the last century, right, um, car and car manufacturers have, have perfected mass production of internal combustion engined cars, right? Now they're having to deal with, well, who knows, right? Electric, hybrid, uh, hydrogen, other stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and do we sell cars to people? Do we lease them? Do we have to create our own fleets and then you know, basically be an Uber to people like us? Who knows? Um, another example of this, of the explosion that's happening, that, that um, think about the, the market for, I'm going to use a, a, a general phrase, right? Mobile computing devices, right? 25 years ago, a mobile computing device was probably a laptop with a lid and a keyboard. And then came along the smartphone and the tablet. And now we've got the foldable phone. And, you know, who knows where we're going next? You have this explosion. There's this challenge for leaders in what, where do we innovate? What do we kill off? What do we scale? Um, so hopefully you can see how an evolutionary look at innovation gives us a fresh perspective on how we should manage uh, innovation. Uh, for anyone who wants to um, check out your work, uh, where might they go to find it? My, my work is um, really centers on uh, simplicity, finding simplicity and complexity uh, across a number of aspects of organizational life. We've been talking about innovation today. If you're interested more in this topic, um, you can find me online at simplex.info, that's S-I-M-P-L-E-X.info, and on Twitter at, uh, at Ben Schnoy, at B-E-N-S-H-E-N-O-Y. Fantastic. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you, David.